Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. We are back in our podcasting perch right above the exhibit hall in Nashville, Tennessee. And we are going to be discussing a very important topic, one that I touched on in my lecture this morning, but the community continues to demand more resources, more training, and more empathy actually when it comes to mental health. And mental health is one of those topics that is incredibly difficult to talk about, to bring people to the table, but it's something that we need to, as EMS leaders, invest in, dedicate time, energy, and resources so that we really can have well-balanced practitioners and providers and create a longitudinal environment for success. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce Brian LaCroix, coming from Minnesota, the president of Alina Health. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Tell well, thanks, us. thanks so much for having me. This is great. Happy to be here. Yeah. And this is a great perch here, too. You can look <laughs> over and look through the glass windows here, the whole exhibit hall. Yeah, absolutely. Thousands of people and hundreds of vendors. It's awesome. Lovely. So tell us about yourself, Brian, and why is this an important topic as a leader yeah. uh, in EMS? What brought you to the realization that our uh, resources we were providing for folks were insufficient, and what have you done about it? Yeah, so so just some context. This isn't about me, but I want to offer this context. So I, I got involved in EMS in 1983. I began my, my journey in EMS as a patient, and I've told the story before. I've written about it, but uh, I, I, I believe it sets a, a context for sort of what gets me up in the morning and why mm -hmm. this is an interest. This, academically, this is not my area of expertise, but as an EMS provider, historically, and as a leader, I, I feel a deep obligation to, to talk about this issue. So 1983, like anyone who's been around this uh, career field for a while, it was a, the very common culture was the John Wayne syndrome, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. hurt till the bone's showing. Mm -hmm. So if you had a bad call or a series of bad calls, or, or somebody entered the career field and it just, you, you know, that person wasn't the right kind of, it wasn't a good fit. Uh, we didn't talk about uh, ways to mitigate anxiety or depression or even suicide in some cases. We talked about the fact that uh, suck it up, buttercup, as was mentioned. Suck it up, buttercup. Yeah, I think Dr. Rock made that statement yesterday in a presentation. Uh, or, you know, pick up your, this is what it's all about. This is what you signed up for, um, you know, and, and, um, dialogue and debriefing happening over the bar at the bar over beers or cocktails hmm. and that still goes on of course we know that. and in some cases that's not a bad thing I would argue but it's not the it's not the model for addressing mental health and provider well-being so so over the years um, uh, I have witnessed and had you know like anybody in EMS uh, over a period of time uh, we sometimes have day, shifts that are that are incredibly boring, right? And we sometimes have shifts that can be horrifying. And everything in between, those really traumatic and, and challenging events don't happen all the time. In fact, that's one of the things in my trying to better understand this this uh, this uh, area of mental health and well-being. I don't think most of us are on the edge of the cliff at all. I think that we, a lot of people cope extremely well with the challenges of working in the helping professions, in police, fire, EMS, uh, in hospital services, and so forth. But I think a lot of people go through rough patches, and I think there are a subset of people that are traumatically challenged by this work. And it's no longer okay just to say, suck it up, buttercup. We can do better than that. This is a workforce, by the way, that we're trying to recruit into this career field. It's harder and harder to get paramedics to, to join our services across this country, EMTs, uh, in certain cases, physicians, even physicians and others. Um, so why, why not work on making this a place that's not only a place where people can experience meaningful work, but can be healthy 
and uh, feel satisfied with doing it. It's unique in the sense that your spidey sense is always on. In other words, you have to, in our profession, be prepared for anything that may encounter you. And I think that vigilance or perpetual vigilance can certainly make occasional bad calls increasingly traumatic. What has your experience been in provider wellness and health? And really, where are our opportunities as a system, as a country, in regards to overall wellness, what are areas for improvement? How can, yeah. we, how can we structure the conversation better? It's an interesting comment you just made about this perpetual vigilance because I think, I think there's something to that and I think that uh, that can, it can make a person really weary after a while and things happen like the passion fatigue and just kind of sort of checking out mentally. And we, you know, we all see that we all, we've, I've advocated during my career that a really good provider uh, has the three legs of the stool, and this isn't my model, it's a model from a nurse educator by the name of Dorothy Del Bueno. I tell new people all the time, I can convince you of this in 15 seconds, because the model is a really good provider should have good uh, clinical skills, for sure, right? No question. Should have good clinical thinking skills, and the third leg is good interpersonal skills. Yes. And my way to convince people of that is to just ask them to think, don't say names out loud, who have you ever worked with or been a patient of? who is a really good clinician, but mm. a jerk, right? Nobody wants that. Yeah. It's like when you're flying in an airplane to 37,000 feet, you think about the crew in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. You don't want the folks who slid under with a C minus to get the pilot license. You want the A team. All of our patients want the A team all the time, even when we're feeling uh, fatigued, tired, uh, we don't make enough money. My last patient just threw up in my shoe. Yeah. You still gotta put your game face on and provide A-level services. So. So to your question, I think uh, I mentioned earlier that I got into this career field as a patient. My experience as a 23-year-old volunteer EMT that had an episode of PAT in the service area of a volunteer BLS ambulance service, mm. what I know now is they were probably more scared than I was mm. because they didn't know what PAT was, much less how to treat it as, as BLS volunteers in rural area. We're talking about proxismal atrial tachycardia. Correct. A rapid heartbeat that caused me to lose consciousness. The end result of a couple years of really high anxiety for me trying to figure out what was going on is I really didn't have much wrong with me mm. that was going to create significant consequences, except it scared me to death, right? So I, some months after this BLS crew came to take care of me, I went and took an EMT class and started working with them. I became wow. part of their crew. And that's how I got into EMS. And I share that only because it really indelibly put that sense in me that patients matter. And I never forgot what it felt like to be a patient. And I never had a lot of patients with partners who did. Mm. And so I, my whole career, I, I've thought about that. I've thought about, okay, we get, it's, it's easy and understandable to get frustrated and whatever emotions when, when someone calls on us, that really doesn't mean an ambulance happens all the time. We all know that, but what else is going on in their life? You know, what else, how else can we help them? It, it really was the driver behind the whole mobile integrated healthcare uh, movement and the idea of community paramedics and looking at social determinants of health and all that because we're not going to be doing cardiac arrest every shift, right? But we're probably going to see somebody who's struggling with not having enough food, transportation, whatever else is going on in their life. That can be pretty meaningful help as well. Absolutely. So when, when providers struggle with their own mental health and well-being, my hypothesis is we're not very good at doing that. You know, we're not very good at taking care of others if we don't take care of ourselves. So from 1983, when I entered this career, when you didn't talk about, I mean, it's certainly in the, all cultures are different and there's, I know different experiences 
at different of different people around the country and so forth. But I grew up, and many I know did as well, in a culture where you didn't just you didn't talk about this stuff. And if you really needed to, you went to the bar, and as I mentioned, or or some other coping mechanism that may or may not have been healthy. I've worked with a lot of people that got into good exercise. I wasn't ever one of them. That wasn't my <laughs> thing. But um, you know, there can be really healthy ways to do that as well. And again, I'm not an academic expert in this area, but you don't need to be to be supportive of staff yeah. or, or colleagues. And so, so let me fast forward to today. One of the things I appreciate often to talk about is this website, EMS Grid. I would love to get to that, but I think you brought up so many interesting points that I'd like to delve into further. Go for it. What do you think? Absolutely. So I think you bring up incredibly valuable points. And just yesterday we were talking about you know, the advancement of the paramedic profession. Right, we switched the nomenclature in NAEMT from clinicians to healthcare professionals and providers. Understanding that what we do is an invaluable service for the community. And um, some of those softer sciences are things which, you know, in certificate programs have gone under the radar. And really developing the humanity skills, the psychosocial training, the highly effective uh, communication. And then also a renewable uh, well, I would say, of compassion and empathy. Because at the end of the day, we are encountering the majority of our patients on the worst days of their lives. And we are different from other healthcare professions. We're not, you know, having elective follow-up in the office or, you know, uh, well checks like at the pediatrician. When people are calling 911 and showing up to their emergency department, it may very well be the worst day of their life. As we move towards a healthcare industry where quality and the interaction are almost equally as important as the technical skills, the component, and the medical decision-making, this is an invaluable area for us to develop not only the communication strategies, but you know, you briefly had mentioned compassion fatigue, but how do we create practices amongst our providers so that you know they are able to regenerate their compassion and empathy? And really, I think those are critical and core components to actually delivering high quality healthcare. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think about partners I've had in the course of my career. Good EMTs and paramedics and physicians and others have been doing this all along before we ever put a label on it, right? I remember working with, uh, with a couple of really quality uh, paramedic providers who I had great respect for that would do things like make sure that the only thing in the pantry was in French onion soup to, mm-hmm. just, to just heart failure patient who didn't want to go in yeah. or pick up the throw rugs or have a conversation about how hot your water heater is. Yeah. Those aren't things that you're taught EMT and paramedics. Well, those are things that are just human caring and, and uh, to sort of deliberately sharpen that saw. The only good can come of that, I think. I think those are very meaningful to patients. Yeah. In my organization at Atlanta, we have an initiative that's called Whole Person Care. Yes. And the idea, some people rolled their eyes to it when it was rolled out um, across the whole hospital system and EMS system in, in my organization. But the concept is exactly what we're talking about. It's about, this isn't the psych patient in room six. Correct. This is somebody who's got a whole story um, or, or whatever clinical condition. That's not, you're not dealing with the clinical condition, you're dealing with a human being that happens to be engaged in some sort of struggle. And it might be clinical, it might be psychological, it might be all of the above. Absolutely. And, and if you miss the boat, you miss the 
wonderful opportunity to have an impact on humanity when you're just looking at, at a psych event or a, or a yeah, that's a great point. Um, capturing those opportunities, you know, even if it's a simple thing like bringing a patient a blanket or a glass of water. Feed the cat before you leave their apartment. Yes. I've seen that number of times. It's like, first time, I, first time somebody said that, I thought, oh, that's weird, but it's wonderful. I thought that that was just wonderful. And the, and the elderly patient we were going to transport to the hospital uh, was so appreciative. That meant more to them than us taking care of their clinical problems. Yeah. And as a diagnostician, actually, um, you know, systematically through kindness, building and developing a rapport with that patient may actually uh, unwittingly unlock the diagnosis. So that's interesting. And I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but tell me more about that because I don't understand all of what you just said. So in other words, somebody is calling 911. They're in some sort of distress, you know, whatever that might be. And a stranger is coming to their house, Right. So already they're on edge, they're uncomfortable, they're having a bad day, perhaps the worst day of their life. Strangers are going to be entering into their home. And that we have to understand is inherently, as a human being, anxiety provoking. Good, sure. And those small gestures of kindness really, really can go a long way to bringing down the barriers, to developing that professional relationship and actually building a rapport with a provider and you might be in the back of the ambulance and now that you've established trust, you know, you're, you know, placing an IV perhaps and you're asking them of what they're eating or what their home life is and you may unlock clues, which really ultimately you're able to deliver to the emergency department staff. You know what? I noticed this or, you know, there wasn't much food in the pantry or there was a whole lot of fried chicken or et cetera, et cetera. But really it's that human component to medicine we cannot forget. And as we move towards a society that's incredibly focused on metrics and quality and patient satisfaction, you know, we as providers can oftentimes feel like we're machines ourselves and yeah. that fatigue and stress can become overbearing. But it's ultimately that kindness, compassion, which is why most of us entered our profession that can be the secret key to unlock the diagnostic clues that your patient is uh, is hiding from you. That's wonderful. There, there's a, you're making me think of a, of, a, of a guy named Fred Lee. Fred Lee was an executive with Disney who became a hospital administrator. Maybe it was vice versa. I don't remember the career path. But he, he's, you, you, listeners should Google his name, Fred Lee, uh, at a TED Talk. And he talks about the experience of having your blood drawn. Mm. And he talks about this being one of the most least invasive procedures you can have and still call it invasive, right? Yes. He demonstrates and goes through an illustration of two, two ways that could happen. Sherry, the phlebotomist, comes in his room and mechanically goes through this process of drawing his blood, pinches his arm. He talks about uh, when he was a kid, his mom told him, you know, you can get a bubble up there and die and all these kind of things. And then he contrasts contrast that with an illustration of the same experience with someone who's connecting with him as a person and completely different. It's a great illustration of what you just described, sort of played out in a patient care scenario. The idea of... Um, of this sort of human connection. Deming famously said, uh, you know, the quality guru, uh, what gets managed gets, what's getting measured gets managed. managed but he yeah. also said something that is less known, and that is there's some things that can't be measured in a way that is always meaningful to us. And his encouragement was to explore how to measure them. Mm -hmm. How do you measure empathy? Are we asking the right questions? Yes. yes. And, and as we talked about before we started filming, linking the science of this uh, to some people 
helps us wrap our head around why and how it happens and how to mitigate challenges and really how to live a, a happier, better life and, and be a happier, better provider yeah. in clinical medicine. I mentioned to you a clinical psychologist who talked about salutogenesis, the study of wellness. Yes. I had never even heard of that uh, conversation like that. Can you spell that three times fast, Brian? No, but I can say it. (laughs) Salutogenesis, the study of wellness. And the idea is, you know, we talk about uh, post-traumatic stress stress all the time. We don't talk about a concept of post-traumatic growth. And that is an area of salutogenesis that says sometimes when people go through really challenging things, you come out better mm-hmm. and you come out better. And there's, there's physiological reasons for that. And there's, there's environmental reasons, one might argue as well. But the science behind why do tears that are cried when you cut an onion different than when you're sad, mm-hmm. chemically different. There's, there's, I, I think that that resonates for a lot of people. And in some, some cases may break down the barriers to folks even having conversations about this because, yeah. no, I'm not crazy. There's something going on in my brain. Yes. I'll share another clinical research study, which is very uh, similar to that concept. And they asked folks two questions. How would you rate your overall life stress, high or low? And then number two, how would you rate your quality or ability to cope with that life stress, Mm -hmm. good or poor? And certainly the people with high life stress and poor coping mechanisms functionally speaking, had increased morbidity and mortality in regards to medical diagnoses, not just psychological diagnoses. And what they found in those folks who had high, the highest levels of life stress, but nevertheless felt confident in their ability to handle that in a constructive way, had the, the longest health spans. Wow. And I'd like to just differentiate the definition between lifespan and health span. So lifespan is how long you live. But health span is nuanced. It's not just how long you live, but how long you live and into your older age, your quality of of your life and your ability to uh, retain your uh, activities of daily living. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That's good. It's interesting, though, the neuroscience behind it. Talking about mental health in EMS is challenging. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered in just starting the conversation with providers? I've taken the long view on this. Uh, closer to the end of my career at the beginning, and when I started, nobody wanted to talk about this. Um, I was fortunate enough to, not many people, I don't say not everyone, but I was fortunate enough to work with an ER doc in eastern Wisconsin, where I was at the time, who was really tuned into this. And at the time, the whole idea and, and uh, practice of, of uh, critical incident stress debriefings and diffusings was just emerging. Mm. And I know and accept that there's been a lot of conversation, some controversy and some pushback around all of those concepts. But this physician, uh, who was a good friend, was really uh, curious about Mm. this area of study and and sought out other people from both a hospital, I worked at a hospital service. So, and he was very engaged in EMS. So he had EMS people and ED folks both engaged in various conversations and get-togethers and bring in speakers from time to time. And this was probably the late 1980s, early 90s. And it was, it was uh, a really interesting time in the sense that there was a group of folks who had a common interest that were aggressively trying to learn about mental health and well-being before mm-hmm. we really called it anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the challenge there was 
we had a we had a, a core group who, who other people would say they're 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 talking about this soft stuff over here. Mm -hmm. Fake wanna, fake wanna, science. Yeah, fake science, right? And I'm I gotta renew my ACLS next month, so that's what yeah. I'm gonna do. So that was a challenge to sort of spread that that message. But it was really kind of rewarding too, because there was a group of people who that I worked in my circle of professional acquaintances who who were curious. I that's the word that keeps coming to my mind. Some of them didn't believe everything. Some of them thought we were on the wrong path. But the cohort was very curious about, could we learn more about this with an, an objective to try and help our peers? And it was successful to some degree. So um, I think, you know, just the longevity that I've been able to have in the careers allowed me to see this, this timeline that over time, some, some people really challenged those ideas, but that resulted in some really good conversations. That's why I said earlier, and I, I'm not encouraging people to abuse alcohol, but this idea that sometimes you go to the bar and have a conversation with a friend can be a good thing, mm -hmm. perhaps if it's done, mm -hmm. you know, in moderation. But um, out of that, this is just a personal observation from my experience. But that's not what I'm advocating. I'm, what I'm advocating is that we just have more conversation about this. I don't think we have it figured out. I think that we have an emerging small body of empirical research that, that finally is demonstrating things that um, objectively that people in helping professions have a higher rate of uh, depression, uh, substance abuse, divorce, suicide than the general population. So we're finally getting a little bit past the hurdle of, well, show me the data. Mm -hmm. We still have to show people the data because there's a lot of doubting Thomases uh, in the world. But um, I don't think people are, are reticent to talk about this anymore. I've certainly seen that change in my career path. I could not agree more. And just to insert a footnote into the podcast, um, the CISM, the Critical Incident Stress Management, it's, uh, we have a, a future podcast scheduled with a clinical psychologist who actually works with first responders, and she'll dive more deeply into why that's exactly harmful. And I think just to s summarize it quickly, it's the mandatory nature of the debriefing, right. which can actually right. inflict more trauma. But she was uh, talking, it's Kimberly Roayton from Dallas, Texas, who spoke at the World Trauma Symposium as well. Uh, incredible topic and really delved into post-traumatic growth. But um, we'll talk about some of our best practice recommendations in a future episode. In regards to getting the conversation started, you and your colleagues have started a website called EMS Grit. What is the definition of grit and what were your overarching goals in establishing this website? Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to sort of introduce this to the audience. Uh, we officially launched this on Tuesday. Um, it is a website and it is intended to be, I, I use the term a, re a reference library. We're not trying to create, uh, we, we have created some new materials, but we're trying to be a clearinghouse. There's a lot of fantastic information out there. A lot of organizations um, are, are doing really good work and disseminating it to, through various pathways. The concept of emsgrit.org was to have one place people could go. Uh, organizations like the National Association of EMTs uh, we're pointing have great stuff you, on on the NEMT website. There's great contact information as an as a micro example of uh, suicide prevention hotlines, things like that, phone numbers for resources. Um, we are gladly taking all of that information from multiple uh, uh, groups, uh, you know, Code Green, others, and saying we'll point them to their website. Mm -hmm. We just want it to be a land. It's a landing page. Mm -hmm. So the idea of EMS Grit, I have to credit the Red Flash group. The, the marketing communications group out of San Diego led by Keith Griffiths, who actually came up with that name because we said, well, what are we going to call this? Well, well, we landed on EMS Grid. Grid 
by definition, um, some would say means tough, resilient, um, not without fault or flaws, but soldiering through. And so the idea here is that this resource site could be used to help support staff. Now, it's, it's produced by the National EMS Management Association by full disclosure. I'm, a, I'm the president-elect of that organization and on the board. We decided we wanted to build this toolkit. The concept was a toolkit where leaders could go to find information to help support the staff and EMS providers uh, mm -hmm. under their charge. Frankly, that's the, that's the overarching intent, but there's information there for anyone, leader or not. And we deliberately designed it under the pillars of, of stigma, resilience, and self-care. And those things came out of our, our provider well-being committee, those, top, those pillars, with the hope that we could have specific material around each of those and other things as well. But if you are a leader in Resume Speed Montana and you've got 14 volunteers that work in your shop and you might not have a ton of resources to help find ideas to help that your staff have a good experience working in this career field, it's a place you can go to find out a poster about stigma. You know, stigma is as common as brown eyes being left-handed. Uh, excuse me, mental health illness. So one in four of us, is the stat right, one in four of us yeah. have a mental health issue in our lifetime. Why don't we want to talk about it? Why don't we want to raise our hand and say, I struggle with alcohol or I'm, I'm not feeling very good and it's been that way for six months. Yeah. Um, there's resources that are available to help. But stigma still prevents a lot of us from stepping forward and, and seeking support. It's an interesting thought. Uh, I'd like to dive into that more. And I have my own hypotheses and theories, and I don't think there's one single answer, but certainly in EMS or in first response or um, public safety, you know, the core mission is to protect the citizens and to help the citizens. And I think one of the faults in that default setting is that in order to care for your citizenry in the best way possible, you have to start by caring and loving yourself. Many of us in the pre-hospital sphere have a superhero syndrome in the sense that we think that we can push ourselves when working and trying to care for others and to save lives and resuscitate critically ill patients. But really when it comes down to the self-care, the stigma is very tied to the fact that, you know what, my job and my mission and my core belief is that I'm here to help other people. And the missing part of that equation is that in order, for, in order to care for others in the best way possible, it needs to start with self-care, self-love, and self-compassion. So again, this is not, I do not profess that this is uh, my academic area of, of expertise, but as someone who has been a paramedic since 1985, been on thousands and thousands of ambulance calls and witnessed partners and other providers um, do really great in this arena and some struggle mightily, uh, I, I think that we need to give permission to people to say, I'm not John Wayne and I'm not Bulletproof. And sometimes I just need to go somewhere and cry. And that's okay. That can be okay. So this idea of stigma was our first uh, pillar. The idea of resilience, uh, we talked about post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I, I, my hypothesis is that uh, we have to be careful about this whole conversation, not to imply that people should feel bad. Nobody needs to be told to feel bad, number one. If you don't feel bad about your job, God bless you. Don't, that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. But if you do, don't, don't, have the, don't let stigma stop you from talking about it or seeking help. But when, when just day-to-day -day stuff happens, sometimes our jobs are really exciting and, and energizing, and sometimes they're challenging. 
and sometimes they're very sad. And so this idea of resilience is, is not about addressing the, the big clinical issues of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's about addressing the day-to-day -day stuff. How do you feel good about doing being in the revolving door of EMS, whether you're in a, sometimes I think slower services are almost more challenging than busy services, um, regardless of your circumstance or where you work. That can be hard for everybody. And so how do you be, how do you stack up resilience? You know, putting that deposit in the bank of resilience so that when you need it, you can take a withdrawal and you're still doing well. So that's the other big pillar. What's this, the answer to that? I think it's, I think it's little steps. I think it's, it's a, it's a focus on, on um, recognition, self-awareness, um, having a network of, of people. Uh, and and uh, I would argue that uh, it's important to have a network of people that you can lean on within your career field and outside of your career field, mm. because I think you need both of them. And, and, and there's no silver bullet for any of this, right? It's, it's just a, it's just, it's a journey, not a trip. So it's sort of earning, earning that little bit of strength every day. So that's the idea of resilience. And then self-care is, is, it's all intertwined, right? It's about, am I conscious of my drinking, my diet, my sleep habits? And if I'm only sleeping four hours a night uh, for a, a sustained period of time, is that an okay thing? Is that healthy for me? And if the termination personally or through conversation with the caregiver or others, then, then what do you do about it? Act on it. If you've got something going on, then make a plan and act on it. Mm -hmm. uh, we hear a lot about the, the benefits of things like meditation, uh, yoga. Uh, EMS Grit sponsored a yoga exercise. Oh, here 700, EMS yeah, absolutely. On Tuesday. Um, riding your bike, whatever it is. But this idea that you're taking care of yourself as well. You said it. You can't take care of others if, if you're not truly uh, successfully taking care of yourself. So EMSGrit.org, the resources that we have here, some of them came from the National Association of EMS Management. Uh, the National EMS Management Association. Uh, some of them have been borrowed from open source friends who have offered up their materials to us. And the idea is we will refresh it all the time. Mm -hmm. So if someone goes there today, it's going to look different next month. Mm -hmm. so, so we're hopefully going to be um, able to contribute a lot of resources that people can just go through and say, this might look good. I'll give you an example. There's a couple PowerPoint presentations that one of uh, the educators that I work with in my shop in Minnesota about this topic. And they have some Minnesota data in there. Well, take, the idea is take the PowerPoint, put your own data in it. You can make it your own. So you don't, you're not just starting that volunteer uh, supervisor that I mentioned in Montana with 14 people. They don't have to start from scratch. Yeah. You've got something to work with, the toolkit to help get this conversation kicked off. That's a great uh, way to frame it. Is a toolkit a way to get a landing page to get the conversation started? so that folks can connect with the resources to help step-by-step -step start building uh, resilience and self-care and ultimately lead to uh, regenerating or refilling the well of empathy, compassion, so that they can provide the best care possible. And let me make a pitch that, so the National uh, EMS Management Association has produced this. There's two sponsors. One is my own agency, Align Health EMS. The other is uh, First Watch, mm -hmm. uh, Todd Stout's organization in San Diego. Uh, we need a little bit of seed money to get this website built. But beyond that, we're asking the industry to help support this. Mm -hmm. If anyone listening has ideas or, or resources that you'd be willing to make open source to post on this site, there's a contact us uh, uh, opportunity on that website, ems.org, emsgrip.org. We'd love this, as I said, to be the, the library people can go through just to flip through things that might be helpful to others. 
An, an example of that is our, our friends and colleagues from the Paramedic Chiefs of Canada mm. have been doing a lot of research in the University of Regina in, in Saskatchewan. The federal government in Canada funded this research to the tune of $20 million, Canadian, crazy amount of money. Uh, we have done no such thing in the United States. But what they're doing is they're doing a, a number of research projects related to this topic, but it's benefiting Canadian Armed Forces, Police, Fire, and EMS, all, mm. of, those, all of those agencies. And they made it all open source. One of the things, it's called SIPSERT. I'm not doing an ad for it, but I want people to know about it. Mm -hmm. That's an acronym for something I can't remember, but it's, it's C-I-P-S-R-P, SIPSERT, uh, I want to say. Um, you can easily Google it, but and it's on emsgrid.org too. But what it is, one of their things that they produce is a screening tool that was developed by clinical psychologists, so it's all been vetted. It's very simple. It got, I think, has eight topics: so anxiety, depression, PTSD, substance abuse, and a few others. So it's it's a personal self-assessment screening tool. Anyone can go there. Thousands of people have taken these screening tests. I can go in there and I can click depression, and I answer eight or ten questions mm. that were developed by a clinical psychologist group. And I will get an email response. It doesn't go to anybody else. It comes mm -hmm. back to the to the person who did the screening. And if, then what you have is you have a, a, a thirty thousand foot level screening of that particular clinical condition with your responses that you can bring to a provider who would know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's fantastic. It's great. It's that kind of stuff that we want to help spread on EMS Grid Title. That sounds like a great idea because even as a partner, you might, you know, encourage your other partner to say, hey, you know what, you're really showing a lot of symptoms of anxiety. And of course, you know, the natural human response is to say there's no way. Yeah. But just encouraging to take part in an evidence-based tool might yeah. be an impetus for them to get some objective information as scientists and healthcare professionals to say, oh, well, maybe I'm screening positive on this survey that I really should uh, initiate the steps to figure out what's going on and how, I can, how can I help myself. Right, yeah. right. And you've said it a couple of times, but you know, most of us who have entered the helping professions, it's, it's cliche as the day is long, but it still holds true. There's a genuine desire to help people. Mm -hmm. And things like a lack of good mental health and well-being get in the way of us doing that. Mm -hmm. so, if you need to, if you if you're the kind of person that need to have that reason, if you want to help people, this is getting in the way of doing it. Then yeah. that's how you should approach it. It's, it's up to all of us as individuals to be just the the, the, the encouragement is just to be deliberate about that and assessment for yourself. Just to share a story of vulnerability, so that um, you know we can certainly relate. Uh, the audience might be able to relate to, but. We as, of course, physicians have patient satisfaction surveys. I was going through a particularly rough patch and I did a whole talk on it this morning, which we recorded. And it sounds like we're probably on EMS Nation going to have a series on mental health. So please do listen to that talk on the limbic system and toning that for um, optimal psychological performance. But objectively speaking, the patients were able to tell that I was not performing to the best of my ability. And I think just getting that data, uh, no, nobody had to really intervene. Uh, I didn't have to have a talk with my supervisor. It was clear as day as it was to me. I went from 100% excellent to about 50% excellent. Mm -hmm. For somebody who really values you know, developing patient rapport and excellence in uh, clinical care, I was like, 
that's a pretty steep drop. Something is going on. It's affecting my communication with my staff. It's affecting the perception of my patients. And I had to do a deep dive and get some help and actually look into how I could restore the best in myself. And it was certainly a part of wellness, self-care, compassion, and resilience that helped me bring it back to 100% excellence. So this is not something if you are experiencing that is a vulnerability an imperfection and an inadequacy in yourself. But really our message here is this is an opportunity for you to just gather the data and say, okay, uh, I appreciate your concern. It might be a colleague. It might be yourself just taking that online survey, but to say, okay, well, you know, the objective screening tool is saying that something might be wrong. Let me really look into this and see if there's a shade of truth uh, behind it. So first of all, I just want to pause and, and, and thank you for the courage that you just uh, roll on for the rest of us and just acknowledging that you're not Superman. Uh, none of us are. Um, so I, I applaud you for that. Uh, that type of acknowledgement of any of us that have gone through issues, rough patches, whatever you want to call them, um, will help us get over this idea of stigma getting in the way of us being our very best. So thank you for that. Thanks, Brian. So EMS Nation, you guys heard the call to action from Brian. This is a landing page and website that's designed to be complementary to all the other psychosocial aspects and uh, resources that are out there, but really is designed to say, okay, if you are experiencing an issue or something has come across your plate that really needs further attention, this is a starting point. And we can, you know, just like how do you climb the mountain, it's one step at a time. This is really where to begin. Wonderful. Well, uh, thanks for the chat and uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Brian, just before we wrap up, what's your final call to action for the audience? What would you like them to do? How can they best help support the new initiative of EMS Grit? And what are your takeaway messages and final points? So thanks for asking that question. The, the, the one thing that I would ask, uh, let's start with stigma. Every one of us, whether you're in a leadership role or not, have the ability to say, uh, in, in the next six months, I'm going to do something in my organization that sort of breaks down the barrier of having honest conversations about well-being, including all aspects of that, physical, emotional, everything. So, so my ask would be that if you're in a leadership role, bring it up at a staff meeting. You know, if you are working shifts as an EMT in a volunteer agency, talk to your leaders about this and see if they have any thoughts. Uh, if you are in a hospital or a fire-based ser ser service, there's resources already available. Do you know about them? Just go check them out and, and make it okay to talk about mental health and well-being. And of course, I do ask that you would go take a look at our website, emsgrit.org. And if any of you have material or ideas of ways to enhance that site, this is not ours. It's the world. We want to give the, give away properly vetted data that is supportive of people's well-being. So if you have any ideas about that, please contact us or just send it to us on the website and we can post it on the emsgrit.org. There you go, EMS Nation, a little bit better every single day. And with that, this is Brian LaCroix and Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour. <laughs>